Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a spin-off of Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month. On this episode of Raw, we talk about um, a bunch of things, actually. The countries that have been the biggest surprise, riding in the heat, cooling vests, listening to music, books, or podcasts while riding, new small adventure bikes, and riding with small bikes, and a whole bunch of other probably extraneous stuff. <laughs> but as you know, Adventure Rider Radio and Raw is powered by some ads and your support, listener support. And we really appreciate the support that listeners uh, give us because without it, we couldn't do it. We just could not do it without your help. So we have a, a support page set up at uh, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can support with any amount. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you for your motorcycle, your panniers or something. Um, and anything $50 or more gets you a mention here on the show right now. And that's what I'm about to do. Um, you can opt out for that as well if you if you want to um, uh, support the show but not get mentioned on here, although I can't understand why you would want to do that. But if you do, that's not a problem. We also have Patreon as well. Um, we set up for Patreon so that um, if you want to, and we would love it if you did because this is, the, this is the real big help for us, you set up on Patreon to do a monthly support amount and you can pick any amount, any anything at all. That allows us to count on it each month and work on production, not have to worry about other things. Um, like getting enough money to make the show work. So um, I'd like to um, give a shout out to uh, these people. Now, we did miss last month, maybe aware and likely are aware of it, and you'll hear more about that on this show. But uh, let me give a shout out to these people, and we really appreciate this. Of course, we, we appreciate everyone's support, like I said, but these are the people who sort of uh, went above and beyond the call of duty, you could say, um, the $50 or more. Darren Judd, Jeffrey Fusero, Kevin Ferreter, Gary Turner, Deanne Farley, Jeffrey Kogan, James Carlson, and Damon Kinter. Thank you all very much. That's that's really great. And it does make a big, big difference for us here at Adventure Rider Radio. So thank you for all those donations and support and um, the, all of you out there who do any sort of support for Adventure Rider Radio. So since we missed last month's Raw, we have an extra long show for you today. So to try and prevent you from falling asleep, we've broken it into two parts. Go figure, we went and named them Part 1 and, yes, you guessed it, Part 2. And it probably goes without saying that Part 1 is meant to be heard first. So here we go. ARR Raw for May 2018. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is May 2018 and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw and personal, except for what I'm just saying right now. My name is Jim Martin and at the virtual roundtable today, afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-host. I'm going to start in Australia, Shirley and Brian. Good afternoon, am I right? Yes, good afternoon, good afternoon from, oh, what's it like out here? It's sort of grey today. We're starting to get that chilly weather as we head into winter. Uh, oh, look, yeah, good afternoon, everybody. And, yeah, look, I don't mind this weather. I took um, a little triumph I've been rebuilding out for a gallop yesterday and it was a beautiful, bright blue sky. All right, the temperature's chilling down to about oh, 16, 17 degrees uh, Celsius. But um, today I took a, an old BMW K100 out for a bit of a spin and it's just nice, nice crisp feeling in the air, no flies, nothing like that. So, yeah, weather's great over here in um, Australia. Uh, that's a good sales pitch, uh, but I'm not buying it because we're going into the warm weather here and I'd much rather have that. But good try. <laughs> <laughs> so down the coast to Grant Johnson in British Columbia. Grant, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. We're just, we're just talking about enjoying the weather here. We had 27 degrees the other day, which is absolutely spectacularly hot for early April in British Columbia. Actually, May. Sorry, what am I saying? It's May already. Oh, my goodness. It's May already. Yes. And that's Celsius, 27 degrees Celsius. So if you don't know Celsius, the conversion is... Way too much. Yeah, it's warm. 
It's warm. It's of warm. course, we could Google the conversion, but, you know, that'll take the fun out of it. And Sam Manicom. Double it and add 30. Yeah, what is it? it add 30. You double it and add 30? Just double it. Double it. Add yeah. 30. Yeah, something like that. So 82? Well, 20 oh. is 50. You never do math in front of people like that. That was stupid. No, it was a mistake. <laughs> so, so Sam, it's always embarrassing. <laughs> so just the hesitation. <laughs> the hesitation says it all. Sam Maticom, who is touring the States once again. I think it's your second home practically, Sam. It is, isn't it? Oh, I love it here. Um, I just, every time I come over, I'm just finding new things all of the time. I'm in Virginia at the moment. And I've been in, over here for um, almost three weeks now doing um, book signings and presentations. And it's just been absolutely brilliant fun. I, mean, I need to do a shout out to Dunbar Eurosports in Massachusetts and Hermes BMW in Pennsylvania and Dulles, um, uh, Motorcycles Dulles in Washington, D.C. But, you know, I really want to do a huge shout out to all the Adventure Rider Radio Raw listeners who keep coming to the presentations. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, how many people are listening to the show and, and, and coming along. And the comments that people are feeding back um, about you guys, well, some of it shouldn't be said on air. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it's been brilliant fun meeting everybody. And I've been able to go to places like Cape Cod and stand in the sort of area where the Pilgrim Fathers um, landed and Rhode Island and uh, this last few days. I've been staying with um, friends Mark and Louisa who live um, very close to the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is just drop-dead gorgeous area. But they had um, a typhoon rip through here a couple of weeks ago. And, um, I mean, their house wasn't damaged, but they lost um, 50 trees um, in the land around their house. So I spent the last days with them um, chopping wood and um, stacking the hills that have been alive with the sound of chainsaws. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been very good. And I'm off to Overland Expo West in Flagstaff next. Oh, that's very cool. I wish I was going to that. Uh, yeah, if you ever get the chance to, Jim, then do. It, the buzz there is just, um, it's fantastic. Oh, I'll definitely get there and get there eventually. Zipping back around the world, halfway around the world, to Bulgaria, we have Graham Field. Graham, good morning. Good morning. What were you doing this morning, Graham? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I had to set an alarm uh, because we're doing it a bit earlier. And there's this beautiful dawn chorus that we're having at the moment, spring dawn chorus of all the birds. And so without wanting to sound too decadent, we're sitting in a hot tub, listening to the dawn chorus and slowly watching the sky turn pink as the sunrise. So it's actually quite annoying to have to come in and do this, put on my headphones, can't hear the dawn <laughs> chorus anymore. But, um, you know, this is what you have to suffer for your art, don't you? So, but, but you hear us. You, you hear all our voices and, and just the camaraderie know, here. You That's... have a podcast, Jim. I can listen to you whenever I want. That's the beauty of the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, you know what you got to do? you got to record the birds and then just have it on a tape that you play. Did I just say tape? Have it on digital that you just play in your oh, house oh, so you can listen to it any time of year. I'll get out my cassette player, Jim, and do that. That's you do that. Idea. The real to real is much better, I think. <laughs> get your Walkman out, Graham. Uh, yeah. Take it with you. Yeah, making me feel really old. The old bike I took out today actually has a radio cassette in it, and I had to drag out all the old cassettes, and I'm bopping along listening to the 60s music on a cassette on an old motorbike. How yeah, good is that? Perfect. <laughs> Oh, talking about cassette tapes, my full pickup does as well. I mean, it's all computerised. You can't do any work on the bloody thing because the whole thing is fault diagnosis engine management, yet it's got a cassette player. Wow. <laughs> it's like the worst of both worlds. I haven't got high-quality music and I can't work on it. <laughs> I know a guy who's still driving a car that's got an eight-track in it. Well, that's, and he's that's, got eight tracks in the car. That was my story. It goes back a number of years now, but it was eight tracks were long gone at the time. And I had a friend that he, he was just always bragging about the eight track deals he could get because he would go to yard sales, buy the eight track cassettes. <laughs> and he thought it was just like the best thing ever because it was super cheap music. And he was sort of a super cheap guy. And so he loved eight tracks, <laughs> loved getting, you know, old technology. Didn't get a lot of new releases, I can't imagine. Yeah, you get the classics, I guess. He's stuck in a time warp anyway, yeah, isn't he? Brian, is that what you do in the wintertime? You rebuild bikes? Uh, well, I just seem to collect them. They just seem to arrive in my garage somehow. And, um, 
Yeah, I bought this one for seven hundred and twenty Australian dollars, a K one hundred BMW, and um, we've done it up, and it goes like a steam train. It's fantastic. It's got a Finale shocker on the back, and boy, it's not bad for an old thing. Sorry, sure. They they just show up in your garage. <laughs> I mean, okay, you're not talking to Shirley here. You're talking to us. <laughs> Yeah, I know. They just sort of get there. I've got a friend who's um, um, helping me build them up a bit. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun just tinkering around. I've got a Triumph Sprint from 93, uh, a K100 from 89, uh, a TT600 from 84, I think I think it is. Um, yeah, they're still getting there. And I, I pulled out the old Royal Enfield the other day from 1966 and hadn't been started for a couple of years. Uh, changed the oil and... Um, Pulled, pulled it off the stand, one kick, bang, away it went. And nice. none, of, none, of, none, of this, none of this stuff with, you know, the fuel clogging up the fuel injectors or anything like that. The old fuel from two, three years ago, no problem to just fire it up and away it went. Mm. Your Beamer, though, the one you ride all the time, that's fuel injected. Yeah, that's fuel injected. And, um, yeah, but I'll keep that. I only bring that up because I just don't want you to sound like a Leadite because it sounds like you're one of those guys who, you know, is clinging to old technology. <laughs> there are advantages to that old technology. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, well, a little bit of nostalgia doesn't go straight, Jim. And I, you know, I'm enjoying it. So, so um, yeah, sure. Well, I think there's another one on the way. But anyway, we'll t- talk about that later. If what? ever I ask, where did this come from? Oh, this. The, oh, I've had this for ages. Yeah. This I love that answer. <laughs> I love that answer. That's always great. Time. It's somehow there's something about if it's been done for a while, it's it's not as egregious as if it was just done recently. Yeah, well, that's oh, I don't know. yeah. Can I just ask you a question? Um, with your um, fuel injected injected bike, I mean, the fuel in Australia is um, full of ethanol now too, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's a problem with um, fuel injected bikes. I, I had a friend who had a HP two, uh, you know, like one of those. BMW rockets, mm, rocket ships, yeah. and he'd left it in the garage for, no, I think, about six months, and it wouldn't start. And the the fuel had actually eaten away the insides of the fuel pump, and we had to replace the fuel pump on it. Um, you can't leave um, uh, the fuel that they produce nowadays in a bikes with fuel injection for too long. There is a substance, I think it's called Stable, that yes. you can put to 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 um, keep the fuel fresh, but with the carby bikes like the old cafe, little cafe racer I've got, the infield, the TT, all that, that those bikes, no problem, it goes through it. But when you start uh, getting fuel injected stuff, it's uh, bloody hopeless to be quite honest with you, Sam. But so that's... are you using an additive um, on a you know a, a fill up to fill up basis? No, or just no, a store. Don't... Just for storing, uh, but uh, like when we're travelling on the on the twelve hundred GS, if if we get poor fuel, I'll immediately put better fuel in it. And as soon as I get home, I'll put fuel injection um, cleaners through it and um, wring its neck for a, a, a tank load of fuel, and it's fine after that. Yeah, I've, I'm, one of the reasons I'm asking is because I'm seeing a lot on the shops over here um, and the dealerships and the gas stations and so on. Um, this additive. And uh, there are some um, gas stations that will still still be selling um, ethanol-free fuel, but they're hard to find. And I've been talking to a few people over here, and they're sort of swearing by this stuff. But my yeah. goodness, it, it doesn't half add up to the price of fuel. Okay. I mean, it's but, less important, of course, in the States, but it's, it all adds up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah but- that's right. A couple of years ago, I was going around Australia, and I bumped into two guys on Harleys, brand-new Harleys, and we're just chat, chewing the fat as you do at a service station. And they were tanker drivers that deliver fuel to the outback. And they were carrying additives for their Harleys because they said the fuel out here is crap. Um, it's I've got all these uh, ethanol-based stuff in it and we want to keep our bikes clean. So even those guys who know a little bit more than the average Joe Blow were saying that um, you should put some additives through it. But... My attitude is if you're burning up a lot of fuel and you're going through it all the time and then every now and then you put a cleaner through it. Now, I've I've never touched the injectors on my bike and it's now up to 265,000 Ks on it. Never been touched. And um, the injectors are still doing their job and no signs of any problems with them at all. That's fantastic. One of the things that I noticed with my old R80GS is that – when the bike stands for a few weeks, um, 
I get loads of water in, in the bottom of the tank. Oh, really? Well, is yeah. that with a full tank? And that's supposed, and yeah, and that's supposed to be um, a side effect of ethanol, yeah. um, heavy fuel. Yeah, because the, the ethanol, from what I understand, the problem is it absorbs too much moisture. We've already got water in our fuel. There's a certain percentage in which is expected to be there. It helps with combustion. But the ethanol absorbs more and holds more in there. And the additives, usually when you're talking about an additives like stable, that's to uh, maintain um, octane. It has nothing to do with dealing with the excess moisture yeah. that seems to be there. And I and I haven't heard of of um, ethanol fuel actually eating things. I've heard some people talk about it's supposed to be bad uh, on your injectors and, and things like that. But um, I just can't, I, I don't quite get what is what it is about the ethanol that is eating away at the inside of, for instance, a fuel pump. Well, I, I, I know that there's uh, at least of at least half a dozen bikes where this has happened, where um, where the bike has been sitting for some time with fuel in it, and it's eaten away the insides of particularly um, the fuel pumps. So uh, that's a real danger. Now, I'm not sure whether it's ethanol or some of the other additives that they're putting in the fuel, but... Um, Are they BMWs? Uh, yeah, well, mostly because that's the mechanics I use, but I know of other bikes that um, have the same problems. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Mm, interesting. Well, um, maybe we should we should move on to some questions because we've got a few of them, and I, I think we're uh, we're going to have quite a bit to talk about here. The first one comes from Neil Lyle, and he says, "Hi, just looking at a cooling vest, and of course, Aussies will really get this. We had forty eight degrees Celsius here in Australia, and I went camping. Coming home, it was way too hot to ride, and was looking at a cooling vest to help with the hot days. And Neil's wondering if anyone has tried these or has." ideas on them. First of all, 48 degrees Celsius, double that and add 30? Correct. Yep, that's right. No, no, add uh, 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking for the answer. Oh. <laughs> 126-ish, uh, something. Like yeah, about 128 degrees. Is that even possible? That's really hot. Yeah, I've ridden in 50. So I don't know about everybody else here, but 50 degrees Celsius in the Sinai in leathers was way too hot. Very unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, we did temperatures like that in Uzbekistan and um, Kazakhstan. It was really hot. Great for weight loss if you drink a lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and surely riding two up, that, that's even tougher on you because in the back you're, you're yeah. not getting the airflow. No, I don't. And um, I've got really, really clever pants with zips in them so I can get lots of flow through if only Brian wasn't as big as he was, is. Uh, I have to dangle my legs out the side and try and get some breeze, but um, it does get really hot. We've never tried the cooling vests, but we bought at a bike show neckties that have got some kind of gel in them and you soak them for a few hours and then they maintain a cool temperature around your neck and particularly when breeze gets on it when you're riding along and we found them really good. But people often say to us, people who don't ride, they say, oh, it must be so nice on a hot day. And I just ask them to get their hair dryer out, put it on full speed, full heat, and blow it in their face, and then tell me how pleasant it is. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect description. Absolutely 40, right. Exactly. 40 degrees plus is sitting in the pub having a beer time, not riding motorbike time. It's way too hot. Yeah, once it gets past your body temperature, 37, that's just too much because then you have to, you can't have the air blowing over your skin to try and cool you, which is how you would normally feel cool. You have to actually seal up your your riding gear so that you're not getting the wind drying you out and dehydrating you drastically. Yeah. It doesn't and burning. Yeah, and burning badly. I remember driving across um, Death Valley and seeing a bunch of people on Harleys going by in in like vests and no shirt and helmetless thinking, my God, you're just going to fry. It's going to dehydrate and you're going to be having heat stroke anytime. It's just crazy. And here I am and it's all my gear fully tightened up and helmet, uh, facial closed in the works. Big difference, yeah. but uh, I, I think saw, I was better off. I saw him wearing the same clothing right, right up to Alaska as well. It wasn't very practical in that environment either. <laughs> <laughs> What, what yeah. about vests? And the people you see in shorts and things, oh, my God, just uh, biggest belief, really. That's yeah. A, yeah, yeah. That's the whole other issue as well. I mean, just when, it, when you mm. talk about protection. But, but I mean, has anyone anyone at all tried a cooling vest? And there's lots of them on the market. Yeah. 
Yeah, Susan and I have ones. We bought them at a BMW rally, in fact, which are typically ridiculously hot. I think everyone I've ever been to, the temperature has been out of this world. It's just ridiculous, always. Uh, so we bought these vests and figured these would be cool. And they're okay. I'm not a huge fan, and I would never take one with me on a trip. They're too bulky. Um, but I think they do help a bit. If I was going out for a day ride and it was really hot, yeah, sure, get it wet and stick it on. But you've got to stop every couple of three hours and rehydrate them or they don't work very well. Maybe the ones yeah, I have are old. They're seven or eight years old. Um, but I wasn't that impressed, so I don't know about anybody else. Well, I'm a complete cheapskate. I don't want to spend the money on them. My cooling vest has been a wet T-shirt. I just every time I stop to fill up with fuel or find a river or something like that, then oh, soak my T-shirt, soak, soak the inside of my crash helmet and um, just then ride with my visor closed. And that makes a hell of a difference. And, of course, as Grant was alluding to, drink lots of water. Yes, drink and drink and drink. Uh, I remember a number somewhere you could drink like 8 to 10 litres of water in a day if it's hot. And I know I really have to work hard to, to convince myself to do that, but it's really important. You need to do it. And, of course, there's always the, what, what's the color of the other end as it comes out? If it's dark yellow, you're not drinking anywhere close to enough. If your mouth is dry, you're not drinking anywhere close to enough. As soon as your mouth is dry, you're passed in and well into dehydration. I still haven't moved past Sam in a wet T-shirt. <laughs> I can tell you I'd win prizes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving on. Moving rapidly on. Now, listen, seriously, though, I mean, what Grant's saying is right. Um, uh, when riding through the Sudan, it was 40 degrees in the shade, and um, I drank 15 litres that day. And when I went to sleep that night, I was absolutely exhausted and run out of water, um, clean water. And when I woke up in the morning, my tongue was stuck to the top of my mouth. I was so dehydrated and I couldn't get the spit together um, to release my tongue. I actually had to go and literally drink something. Um, and, yeah, I just didn't need to pee at all. Even in spite of drinking all of that, um, I'd got well dehydrated. That's why the Bedouins in the desert always cover up so much. You know, you see the pictures with just the, their eyes showing. And that's why they're doing it, keeping the, the, the heat of the day out um, once it got to, you know, above 37C. Yeah, absolutely critical. I mean, camelbacks are great inventions, aren't they, for, for helping with this sort of thing? I've, I've got I one now. Yeah, I ride with one as well. I, I find it um, it's really perfect because especially if you have a busy day, you're riding with somebody else, you don't want to stop every few minutes or you often don't. Anyway, it's so easy to pick up that tube and take a drink from the, the water on your back. I noticed a company over here, Moscow Motor, are making a tank bag that now has a water bladder in it because there are quite a few people that don't like to ride with the weight on their back. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's quite a neat idea. It's got the same sort of usual sip tube. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I know quite a few people who fill those with ice every time they ride. Um, but there are some health risks attached to riding uh, and drinking, you know, when it's really, really hot and drinking ice water, although it's bumming tempting, isn't it? Because you do feel like you've cooled down quite a lot. But um, the medics say that when you drink cold beverages, your blood vessels shrink, and that means your digestion becomes restricted, and that means hydration is actually hindered. Um, and they say that instead of working to digest the food and absorb nutrients, which help create energy, your body expends energy trying to regulate your temperature, and that leads to water loss. And I think that people need to bear this in mind when they're doing really long-distance travelling. And they say that um, drinking um, cold water after a meal, and this sounds gross, but it creates excess mucus in your body, and that can lead to a decrease in the immune system function, which means that you've got more chance of catching colds and other illnesses. And I had no idea... Until you know about that, until I started looking in, and for those people who are on the large side, if you eat food while drinking cold beverages, or drink cold beverages immediately after, um, the temperature of the liquid actually solidifies the fats from the food that you've eaten, and the body in turn finds it really hard to d digest those unwanted fats from your body. So those people who are trying to lose weight, don't drink cold drinks when with your food. It's a warm beer. Thank you, yeah, well, absolutely. Medicine. Much, much better choice. That was really interesting. You know, some of this yeah, stuff I knew, 
Um, but then when I looked into it, I thought, wow, I, I had no idea about that. No, like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But I don't know. I, I think for me, one of the keys is just don't ride in the hottest hours of the day. Get in the shade for a few hours. Yeah. Uh, Susan, I share a, a water bottle. I, like I, when she's on the back, I don't want to carry the um, the camelback, so we put it in one of the side pockets, sitting on top of the saddlebag, and she just hands me the hose when I need it, and she can drink out of it as well, and that works really well. And we do put a little bit of ice, so it's at least cool as opposed to hot. Uh, yeah, oh, and a here's a tip. Ice works. Yeah, here's a tip for some people. I don't know about you, but I've I used to have always have the problem. You, your first sip, it's positively hot water. Don't sip at first. Blow that warm water back into the bottle and then take a sip. And you'll find it's much cooler and much more pleasant than that hot water on your first suck. Or what, what you do idea. is, um, Graham, uh, Brian is the perfect gentleman and lets me take the first sip. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time he goes to take a sip, it's nice and cool. The well, water. well, you know, I don't, I don't think that's so bad. If you really look at this, I mean, what, what Grant is trying to tell you to do is backwash into your water and then take a drink. Whereas what Brian's doing, you know, he's clearing it out. I think that's kind of a yeah. good system. Good no, seriously, man. what I have done in the past is I'll take that first gob of, I'll take a mouthful of that hot water and then dribble it out over your chin and down your front of your jacket. That cools you down. Or spit it out. Or spit it out and, you. and hope to help Dustin hit me <laughs> <laughs> as, as we're moving along at speed. And now while we've been talking, I've been having a look, and I know I did a, a little story on one of these before, motorcycle air conditioners. Oh, I saw those. Yeah. Yeah. Grant and I talked about that. Has anyone come across those? Sam, it'd be out of your price range, mate. But it's I'm intrigued, though. 269 US dollars for a unit that's they say is the size of a Harry Potter novel that hangs off your hip. That's huge. Well, which that could, includes the battery. That could be very large if it's the last one in the series. Well, it could be big. <laughs> so how the does one this work? I saw before it was a uh, was an actual size of a small top box. That's the one I did the story on, that big one that sat on the back of the bike. But this one actually yeah. hangs off your hip, and it's called My Climate, I think it is. Air conditioning unit, uh, lighter, smaller, hangs off your hip rather than the bigger ones that sat on the back of motorbikes before. It's called My Climate, and the makers promise it will hit the market at about $269, US which includes the battery. Wow. So I don't know whether it's out yet. But it has been tested in Arizona. It's based on what the um, U.S. Navy use, that sort of stuff. And it weighs five pound or 0.68 kilograms. Wow. But how does it work? Well, it, it blows that... fresh air into your jacket, I presume, or ice, uh, refrigerated air into your jacket. I presume that's how it works. But, but do you have to have a special jacket for this with connectors for it? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm still reading through it. But... Uh, hmm. It's controlled by a Bluetooth remote that attaches to the handlebars. You can press the buttons on the control unit to increase or decrease air temperature, which blows inside your jacket. So it must just blow up through whatever jacket you're wearing, I'd say. This sounds like an option for a Honda Goldwing or something. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's what I reckon too. I, I certainly wouldn't be taking it on a round-the-world trip. <laughs> yeah, but if you're in serious comfort, like you're riding a Goldwing, you've got some serious comfort going on, yeah, why not? Have some air conditioning go. I've just yeah, got this image, though, of Shirley sitting behind you, Brian. You know, perhaps you ought to be buying that for her as her next birthday present before going off on a trip. Oh, can I tell you, Sam, that's such a Same. lovely thought. But buying someone a motorcycle accessory for a birthday is um, the equivalent of buying them a new steam iron, <laughs> <laughs> the latest in vacuum cleaner. They are just things that are bought during the year. Birthdays and Christmas are for very special presents, not things like that. But thank you for the thought, Sam. Very, oh, that's very right. Good. I mean, I planted the seed of thought now, at least. Brian, are you listening? Oh, uh, yeah, good on you, Sam. Thanks, mate. <laughs> and Sam knows not what to give Birgit on her birthday anyway. <laughs> I said, you know, I think that Birgit is just really happy to have a big windscreen. When when um, Shirley was talking about um, people sitting in front of a hairdryer turned on full blast, sitting behind a windscreen, although it cuts off um, the the um, the wind flow from your body, um, it doesn't have to deflect an awful lot of heat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Graham, what are you running on your KLR for travel? 
as far as a windscreen goes? Uh, well, the, the first one was, there's a little givey one, because the, the thing is with the European KLRs, it's a different setup, so you haven't got that little sort of nose fairing it's uh, that you can put a screen on because the US models you can have a longer screen you can you can get them up to I don't know 16 inches high but you don't have that option on the European models so I got this little aftermarket givey one which just sort of clamps on the handlebars and batters around but then I put a bigger um, I've gone to a Harley swap meet and got some big Harley screen which I then cut in half and bolted on top of my givey screen and then uh, it actually worked pretty well. That was for the, the first big trip. And then uh, for the new KLR, which is still a, a European older model, um, I bought a, a Triumph Tiger and it came with three different screens because the previous owner had tried all the different screens. And the one that's on it now is an aftermarket one. And the actual original Triumph Tiger screen works perfectly it's even got little indent on it that goes around the master cylinder on the right hand side it's as if it was almost made to fit it's incredible when i first put it on it worked so well i was riding along wasn't looking through the screen i was looking at the screen it's like man this fits so well <laughs> <laughs> which might lead to a, a, another possible truth is that the triumph has been modeled after the old klr <laughs> well with a few extra cylinders <laughs> So that would be the most modern thing on your bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have clothes, my, uh, my ever stylish, fashion-conscious uh, clothing, but yeah. <laughs> well, we have a, uh, a message here from a fellow named Quinton J. Good morning, Jim and everyone. Just some words of encouragement from Terrace, BC. That's up the coast from, from where I am. Absolutely love the show. I've done heaps of riding around BC and I'm doing uh, my first bike trip overseas, heading to Australia for the Mini Hub, then up to Darwin for the KTM Adventure Rally to Alice Springs to watch the, is it Finky Desert Race? Do I have that right? Uh, it's a Fink Desert Race. Fink Desert Race, okay. And then back over to Perth through the Central Road. And he says, listening this morning to episode 25, Tents, Toes, and Feces. He says, I love the banter you all bring and love the little bits of things I pick up when listening. In line with the podcast this morning, I listen while getting bike fit. He's, he does a brisk uh, treadmill and then 20 minutes of yoga. He says, uh, get him through the northern winter. And he said at the time of writing, this is uh, some weeks back now, it was still minus five in the morning. And uh, for sand and the bull dust of Australia. He goes on to say that he wanted to thank us for the, the VPN networks and cybersecurity while traveling. The thoughts on that? Because you guys, somebody brought up the VPN. I had, I've heard a lot about that. Actually, a lot of people have mentioned that that was great information. The, 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 our talk about the, I mean, that sort of came up. I forget who suggested it now. And I think it was, maybe it was Graham. Was it you that mentioned VPN networks? Well, I'd, had, I, I'd, had, I'd recently had experience when we did that because I was using it for booking a train in India. And, uh, and prior to that show, I, I, a week before that, I'd known nothing about them. But, uh, yeah. Right. Well, Quentin uh, goes on to say he's a country bumpkin and sort of um, was uh, back in the 90s. He was backpacking around and everything was connected by cables, as we all know, versus wireless. Anyway, he says, keep up the great show. But he said the topic, getting to the meat of the note here. He's wondering about bike size for adventuring. He says, I know it's something of uh, that he struggles with a lot. He loves riding fast and racing fire roads and even some single track on his KTM 950 adventure. But he keeps looking at the smaller 150 kilogram and less bikes, uh, or, or in that range rather, um, uh, for adventures outside of Canada or within Canada. Uh, DRZ, KTM 690, and older XL 500s. And uh, he says he knows at the end of a hard day he on the 950 that he rides, he, he says he's gassed. He loves the leader bike power, um, but with newer bikes getting lighter and more powerful. Uh, what are everyone's thoughts on getting back to adventure routes on cheaper, lower power, lighter bikes to head out looking for adventure while still having some level of comfort? Also, what are everyone's thoughts on uh, the bikes that are seemingly produced that are labeled... Uh, ADV bikes or adventure bikes is what he's saying, but then need two to 5,000 worth of tanks, crash bars, panniers before they can go anywhere other than the coffee shop. Sorry for the long post. Hope you have a great day. And again, that was from Quinton J. I guess starting with the, the bike size for adventuring. Anyone thoughts on that? Graham, why don't we start with you? Um, well, yeah, I'm all for small bikes. And generally, people who have done it, long trips, uh, particularly solo, 
up for the small bikes, whether you're Nathan Millwood on his little post-it bike and Ed March on his C90 or or even people who, you know, like uh, Stephanie Gervais, who just recently went around the world. What was she on, a 350 or something? So definitely the smaller bikes, cheaper to run, easier to pick up when you drop them. It's not about speed when you're on a long trip. And, I mean, as a KLR650, it's bigger than I need. I stick with it because I know I'm inside out now. But to be honest, I've got a little TTR250 in the shed. And I often find my mind wandering into putting some soft panniers on that and riding off to Turkey or Georgia on it or something, because I definitely think less is more. Although we're broadcasting on Adventure Rider Radio, I think the term adventure is totally overused and it's stuck on just about every product you can think of. And so these big adventure bikes, I think it's an oxymoron with these bloody great KTMs and what have you. As I said, you've got so much stuff on there with the crash bars and all the electronic gadgetry and the adventure is trying to fix it when it breaks and lift it up when you drop it. I'm I'm all for the small bike myself. It, it is sort of um, like everything's a trade-off, but I mean, it's not like, in my mind, it's not like a small bike is going to do something necessary that the big bike won't or vice versa. And I think that's sort of what comes into this argument a lot. People think that you you need the leader plus bike because when you get on the open roads, etc., it's all sort of a trade-off, isn't it? I mean, you know, you got the smaller bike, it's not going to go as fast, but as you mentioned, picking it up is a heck of a lot, a lot easier. I mean, we, we were just out for a ride today, myself and a, and a friend. He's on a KLR, I'm on the F800. And just a few days before, we'd met somebody in a parking lot who came up and was asking about the bikes. And, and he was saying, you know, I, I really want to get um, something like the F800 because the suspension in the in the KLR is crap or, or something. And of course, my buddy who has a KLR, he speaks up and, and, and sort of corrects him on that in his view. But, the, but what we said to the guy was that um, the thing is with it, with where we went that day, we both went the exact same place. We both had just as much fun. It didn't really matter about the bike. It was more about the adventure. And I mean, that sort of goes for, for travel too. Sam? I think that one of the things to, to decide on, and this is where I really like Quentin's question, is you choose the bike for where you're going um, and for how you want to be doing your, your journey. Um, I mean, Brian and Shirley, two up, a bigger bike makes infinite amount of sense for them. If your journey is going to be mostly motorway or freeway miles or main roads, then you can be quite comfortable with a bigger bike and you might even be more comfortable. And you've got the ability to choose whether you go fast or slow. Um, Bigger ADV bikes cost more to buy. They cost more to insure. They cost more to maintain and to ship, you know, from one continent to the other. Um, They're often lots thirstier. Um, and you never really get the chance to ride them to their max ability unless you're a, um, a highly trained rider. Um, but when you're on a big trip, how often would you want to go fast anyway? And I think that they're, and remember that, you know, I ride an R80 GS BMW, um, and there, you know, she's, um, she's a big old lump. I'm glad she's not listening. Um, <laughs> but they're less manoeuvrable than small bikes. Stop laughing at me, Brian. Um, and, you know, parking the, a, a big bike and riding your bike on gangplanks into dugout canoes and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Big bikes are harder work for those sorts of things. But if you're going to be going into terrain um, or the length of a continent, which a smaller bike is going to be much, much happier on and give you much more fun, then, yeah, absolutely do it. And Graham mentioned um, a couple of the guys and Steph Jevons and Austin Vince. I mean... Look at their DR350s and around the world twice with those bikes. And there's a guy in the States that I, I've got a lot of respect for. His name's Andrew Payne. And he covers huge distances with small CC bikes. And, um, and he has a ball. Grant, he does um, classes at Horizons Unlimited events and things like yeah. that, doesn't he? I'm sure yeah, he, used, he was at... Um, he frequently comes to the North Carolina and Ontario and Virginia meetings. Anything on the East Coast, he's frequently there. And he does... 125s and 250s, and he has a great time. Goes just about anywhere on them. Now he also does a, um, a packing light class, doesn't he? Oh yes, he does, and he packs very, very light. It's it's all about what what's pick the right bike, as you said, is the important thing. What's the bike for you, and what you're doing, and where you're going, and your budget. 
What about gear though? Because something that Quentin J says in here is while still having some level of comfort, and I'm assuming that he means not only ride comfort and protection, but comfort of carrying the gear that you want to take with you on a trip. It's a very flexible thing. I can tell you riding a 1200 GS, two up, um, we carry less between the two of us than I would carry solo on a smaller bike, simply because A, we don't have room. There's two of us, there's four, there's twice as much clothing. So we really, really scrimp everywhere to get the load down to the absolute minimum we possibly can. Whereas if I was solo on a 650, I'd have more comfortable stuff with me because I could easily carry it without any issues. How about a 250? On a 250, what am I gonna do with a 250? If I'm gonna ride a 250, I'm probably thinking, yeah, I'm going to do some back roads. Uh, I'm going to do some nasty, gnarly stuff and have some fun in the woods. Uh, Maybe do the Trans-Canada Trail or something like that. And then I'm going to go even lighter, as light as I can get it. There's, There's no such thing as too light. As long as you can do it, survive, stay warm, stay comfortable, feed yourself, keep yourself hydrated, you're fine. You don't need... A whole lot of stuff. Um, I've seen people solo on a 1200 with both saddlebags, three giant roll bags tied on the back, and a couple more bags hanging off the front for one person. You just, I can't imagine what he's got in there, but he must have his entire house in there. It's just incredible. You don't need that much stuff. You find after you've traveled for a while, and everybody here will confirm what I'm saying, is there's always stuff at the bottom of the saddlebag halfway through the trip that you realize you haven't had out since the beginning of the trip. You haven't used it once, and you really don't need it. You always take way too much, and everybody always says, oh, I just sent another box of crap home that I thought I needed for this trip and wasted money on it and carried it halfway around the world and then decided, nope, didn't need that. You always carry too much stuff. Less, less, less. When you look at um, Graham's bike when it's um, set up and he's on a trip and so on, it never looks overloaded. But that's Graham because you don't buy lots of sandwiches and carry them, isn't it? Well, I've got a little, actually, I've got a little, um, a little corner box, little igloo thing, a tiny one, the, the sort that the Americans would just take to work uh, for putting their sandwiches in for the day. And that used to sit behind me. And the great thing about it was, I mean, it doesn't keep things super cool, but it stops them getting really hot. But when you stop at a store to buy your bananas and tomatoes and your bread, it doesn't get squashed into a pannier. It's there separately. And it was a really good thing. And we just went camping the weekend just gone. And uh, I took it there just to put some stuff in. And I realised for the first time, it's got this really clever lid. And as you pull the lid up, it actually turns over 180 degrees and slides back down onto the onto the uh, container, and there's two cup holders in it. I've had that thing for five years. I've taken it halfway around the world, and I just realised it did that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I've used one of those too. We've got pictures of our bike in New Zealand. On on top of the top box is this small six can cooler. It's perfect. They're really useful. Yeah, well, we're just packing, uh, starting to pack for a trip over to Europe now. And uh, Cheryl just said, well, we'll take our little cooler with us. And they're perfect just to carry a little bit of food in. And speaking of packing, we, we are starting to pack now and we won't be leaving until July. We're going to lay out what we're going to take. Well, I am. Don't about you. Uh, the bike goes in about two and a half weeks. Yeah, yeah. Bike's leaving soon. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's something about it. But, Quentin, mate, you're making a big mistake. You're not coming over to the east coast. That's where all the good riding is in the forests and all that sort of stuff. You'll get sick and tired of the deserts after a while and you're going to miss out on Jindabyne HU. Um, you know, you'll see Sanders over in Perth, but uh, ours is better, Sander. <laughs> I thought I like to hear a little competition here. <laughs> They're both good. They're both good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Xander knows I'm only joking. Brian backed away so quickly our microphone just fell off the bench. That, that crash was the, the technically savvy, hardy Rick's crew in Australia stuffing up again. <laughs> now, look, it's just, huge. Just, just, on, just on small bikes, I, I, I agree with what everyone else is saying, you know. If, if I'm, um, I'm just about to go and test the brand new um 1200 uh, Triumph Adventure, so-called Adventure, and the 800 Adventure um, for the magazine I write for. And um, I'm really, really looking forward to trying out the 800. 
worry about it. But same horsepower as what my bike delivers, and I, I I think those. If you have a look at the manufacturers are producing now, all their so-called adventure bikes are getting smaller in capacity and lighter, which I think is a great thing. And just picking up on your point, Grant, about um, packing, you see guys that pack enormous loads on their bike, and what the hell are they carrying? We we, we can fit quite comfortably on the 1200, just the two of us, and um, I don't know what the hell they put in some of those bags, but... Um, yeah. You know, it's just uh, even with, when you go to these smaller, lighter bikes, you should be looking at uh, compromising the packing. And it's not that long ago people were riding Honda XL 250s around the world and having a ball on them. And there's nothing wrong with those little bikes, I reckon. Yeah, yeah I have I a just, great story um, for a couple of uh, guys. Two guys from Ireland, I think, on XL 600s, I believe it was, met a couple from Japan in Cairo. The couple from Japan was on a pair of C90s, and the two Irishmen, of course, are on 600s. Guess who got to Cape Town on the same day? <laughs> That'll be right. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the, the couple on the uh, C90 said, well, we just rode a little bit longer each day, and maybe we rode a few days more than they did, but we all got here on the same day. No problem. And they all had a great trip. They all had a great time. So it's, it's different strokes for different folks, as we used to say, well, the two strokes and four strokes. Um, whatever works for you is what counts. Because I always hear, what's the best bike for riding around the world? Oh, my God. What do, you, what do you ride? What have you got? Do you like it? If you like it, if you love it especially, that's the bike you should be riding. It doesn't matter whether it's big or small. If you love your bike, ride it around the world. It doesn't matter. It'll be fine. The important thing is that you love it. So whatever works. Graham, what were you going to say? Oh, going back, uh, Brian's saying he's going to test a Triumph 800. Uh, I've got a, an 800 Tiger, and I went for a ride last week up to Romania and, and uh, Ser uh, Serbia on it, and it was only a few-day ride, so I just had the top box loaded and a tank bag, nothing else, no panniers on there. And oh, I was because I was going away, I thought I'd shut the gate behind me, so I pulled out the driveway, got off the bike, it's all running and everything, shut the gate, turned around, Bike's laying on its side. <laughs> it didn't want to go with you. <laughs> so I don't know what happened because I didn't see it happen, but I can only assume it rolled forward off its side stamp, broke the clutch lever, dented the tank. Ah. It's got crash bars as well. Great start, great omen to a, for a, you're about to go for a ride. Bastard of a thing to lift up, and that's without luggage on it. And, uh, you know, the KLR is just a bridge you can pick up with one hand. So trying to do the Horizons Unlimited lift your bike up thing, but I've never dropped a bike in that position to be able to do it. So um, lifted that up. And then, um, again, going back to what we talked about, you've been a really good boy, drinking lots of water, having to stop for a piss every 15 minutes. And uh, on about the fifth one, up a raining boulder, I thought, well, I'll leave it running. I'll only be quick. And um, just walking away from it, and it starts to fall over again. <laughs> but, but I'm still there. So I'm under, I'm trying to grab it, grab the exhaust pipe. I've got fingerless gloves on. Burn my finger. Oh. I thought, ah, oh, see, Mr. Adventure Rider, <laughs> watch and learn. <laughs> it's it's well, the throw of the, trip, the, the three-cylinder engine, mate. It just wants to get going. Yeah. Well, so after all of these omens, I'm, did you actually do the trip? Oh, well, the whole thing was a complete pain in the ass. So on top, they have in Eastern Europe all these uh, sort of full transits with uh, flat backs, and they have a car on the back, and they normally have another car. They're trained, and they bring MOT failures over from Western Europe and sell them in Eastern Europe. You see them on the motorways the whole time. I saw one of those completely overturned. Not only was his investment of the cars he bought completely wrecked, but there was also uh, his, his transport, his, his, his way he earns his living was completely wrecked. I saw a dog without getting too graphic. It was just recently killed and just across the highway. There was just all these omens of like death and destruction everywhere, <laughs> my own bike and everywhere I looked. Anyway, so I crossed over into Romania and it was May the 1st. It's a national holiday. So the roads are crowded, everybody's drunk, there's drunk drives everywhere. I couldn't even get a seat in a restaurant, let alone a room. And I was supposed to be heading up to Budapest. I was going to a concert in Hungary. And I thought, this just isn't working at all. 
So I took a diversion along the side of the Danute, and it was absolutely beautiful. And so complete change of plan, ended up staying on the Danute, where I left my wash bag behind with my Swiss Army knife and my everything in it. So I've got to go back there for three weeks and pick up my wash bag. <laughs> I've really lost the knack of this travelling thing. But so anyway... Looked at the looked at the map and thought, this is beautiful. So I ended up crossing the Danube, going to Serbia, riding along the Danube on the south side. And it was actually a brilliant ride, totally safe. Not what I intended to do at all. And I'm so glad I didn't put on Facebook, off to see Roger Waters in Hungary, because I never bloody made it. But um, it was oh, a good, good ride. And I did drop the bike again after those first two times. So I'm definitely getting better. <laughs> okay. you, didn't, you didn't get to see Roger Waters? Didn't you post a, a picture of the ticket or something? Well, this is the other thing. I was going to see him in Sofia on Friday anyway, which I did. But I thought if I go and see him on the Wednesday night, that means I've got to do the 1,100 kilometres, all of them, on Thursday so that I can turn around on Friday and go to Sofia. I thought, I think I'm just going to do one concert properly instead of two concerts and be knackered. So that's what I did. So it's still fine. Still got to see him. And I'm seeing him next month in Paris as well. So it's not too awful. Wow, you're a bit of a fan. So, so- when, oh, when you really? make a comment on, on Facebook about it being your um your your supporting his pension plan, you really mean it, don't you? <laughs> oh God, I've been going. I've been as a solo artist. I've been seeing him since '84, and I really have seen him all over the world. So uh, yeah, I'm a big big fan. Does he and, know you? Uh, Does he know you go to see him? No, and you know what? He's one of those people. I know he's got enough to do with adventure riding, but one of those idols that I really don't think I would like to meet because I think if he was just a little bit of a dick then all this music that I've been listening to all my life, it's the soundtrack of my life. All I will be thinking about is, oh, he's such an idiot when I saw him. So I think it's best I don't meet him, um, but I'll just, I'll just uh, adore him from the stage and uh, I'm reveling his music, and uh, that's good enough. The cat's out of the bag, though, Graham. I mean, you just said it now. Clearly he's going to listen to the show, and he's going to be calling. I mean, you know... Well, I was, but when I've worked, worked wrote in Search Green and Grass, there were lots of little Pink Floyd um, lines from different Pink Floyd songs, and I actually asked for permission for, for using it for copyright permission. And after about a year, I got a response from Roger Waters' office because I didn't know who to write to, so we kept going to different people. And eventually said, "Mr. Waters um, would need to see the lyrics that you wrote in context of the rest of the book, and it could take uh, two to three years before you get his approval. And it would be about three hundred pounds for every lyric that you used. <laughs> so I won't be doing that then. <laughs> so you just plagiarize it and worry about it later. <laughs> no, I just change the word slightly. So if you know, you know, and you don't. You don't so, yeah. but there's no such thing as bad publicity, is there? You know, poor starving adventure author, so, so sued by multi megastar millionaire. <laughs> well, you I might think get to you're fine him. with copyright, Graham, as long as you only use so many words, you would have got away with it anyway. I think that was it, and it was only ever a line. So, um, anyway, yeah. I, I, I think it's safe, and, and if I'm not, you, know, you can come and get me. <laughs> well, the the, uh, the other part of Quentin Jay's question is the one that gets a lot of people heated under the collar. And that's the, um, all the smaller bikes that are coming out being labeled as adventure bikes needing, I mean, I don't, I don't know as I, I totally agree that, um, that they, they all need two to $5,000 worth of tanks and crash bars and panniers before you can go anywhere. Um, because I mean, like, you know, I think Grant just said about the C90 and, and whatnot. I mean, we all know that people can ride anything really any distance they want but what do you guys think anybody have opinions on on some of the um the new you know tiny adventure bikes or things that are being marketed as adventure bikes trying to get to that younger crowd maybe people who are don't want to spend so much money want to ride a smaller bike etc yeah yeah yeah. i I hark back to if you wanted to do a lap of australia and it wasn't that long ago there was a, a, a part on the western australian coast where you had to carry fuel. There wasn't enough fuel capacity in most motorbikes to to do that. And what we used to do is um, get a five-litre old oil container or something and just take that and and strap it on the bike and when you needed to fill up, you filled up and then you chucked it in the bin and away you kept going. And I mean, you don't have to spec bikes up. I think they're pretty good nowadays. You look at the DRZ 400 Suzuki, the 650 Suzuki, the KLR, even the new Honda 500, um, uh, I think they call it the XR or whatever it is. Um, CBX. CBX, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, they're, they're all pretty good. You don't have to do much to them. 
and you know, people make a lot of money out of producing stuff to put on adventure bikes and yeah sure enough a little bit of protection but gee you can manufacture a lot of it yourself too and um, I, I, I wouldn't be modifying them too much I'd be just making sure I had enough uh, luggage carrying capacity really maybe maybe take a, a a little bit extra fuel tank if the fuel tank's uh, too small you know you can get those ones that you can bolt on the the carrier of the bike now so that's probably the way i'd go with a small bike yeah i think keeping it simple is important i think the the market has become so used to buying more stuff and sparkling the bike and and Let's admit it, guys. We like doing that. We like tweaking the bike and making it personal and making it fun. And you look at a catalog, let's say a Touratech catalog, and what do you, you look at a Touratech catalog and what do you do? Ooh, I want that. Ooh, I want that. Ooh, yeah, I must need that. Oh, they make it, therefore I must need it. It's a lot of what goes on. Uh, it's like you walk into a camping shop and there's all kinds of stuff there. Do you need everything that's there? Of course not. The trick is to pick the stuff that you really need to make sure the bike is going to stay intact if it tips over, um, <clears throat> Graham. Um, things like that. <laughs> no comments. He had crash bars. <laughs> Not mentioning him in particular. Oh, sorry, <laughs> he my had microphone was bars. off. Yes, I commented. <laughs> uh, but also, don't be too precious about it. It falls over, it gets scratched. It's an adventure bike. It's going to get scratched. Live with it. It's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, less gear, less stuff. Keep the weight down. Uh, I started riding <clears throat> way back in 1965. I started riding on a 64 Ducati 250 Scrambler. Crash bar? What's that? You know, it fell over. It got scratched. It got dinged. It got dented. It, it got picked up and kicked into shape and rode, ridden some more. And it was my adventure bike. I rode it everywhere. I even motocrossed it, short-tracked it. The only thing I didn't do with it was road race it. But the guy who bought it before me, I was second owner, had road raced it. So here's a 250 scrambler that's been road raced, motocrossed, flat tracked, um, short tracked, and touring bike and trail bike. I wish you still had it too, right? Oh, are you kidding? I'd love to have it back. Wonderful bike. It was a pile of shit in that I kept rebuilding it. It got rebuilt more times than I could count. And my mother was really unhappy when she came home one day and discovered the crankcase baking in the oven. What I was going to say was this, I mean, this leads us into the question. Are the older and more basic bikes better um, than the newer, more high-tech, more fuel-efficient, but um, potentially more sensitive? Um, I mean, there's, a, there's such a big range. There's the Kawasaki Versi X300, there's the V-Strom 250, there's the Enfield Himalayan 400 and the CCM 450. And both of those, both of those companies did an awful lot of research into the market that they were looking at when they were actually designing the bike. I remember CCM coming to Horizons Unlimited in the UK to, um, for two years and mm -hmm. just standing there and picking people's brains. You know, we, we're making an adventure bike. What do you want on it? Um, how would you like it to work, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought that was incredibly the right thing to do. And um, Quinton mentions the CSC 250, and this bike is just proven. Um, there's, Brian, was it you that mentioned the, yeah, it was the, the Honda CBX 500cc. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Benelli have bought out the TRK 500 and, and so on. I was lucky enough to link up with um, Jenny Morgan, who works for Rally Rage in the UK. And this fits in very well with what Quinton was saying. I mean, they've taken um, the bog standard BMW um, 310GS. And BMW have made this bike pretty much as a starter bike, as a commuter bike, um, and also to increase their market, I think, in developing world countries where people just aren't wanting big bikes. They're wanting smaller, fuel-efficient bikes. Um, but what Rally Raid have done is they have made a kit, bash bars and bash plates, changed the suspension, which has made it an awful lot better with settings so that instead of the standard BMW one, which I gather, you know, you've got your setting and that's it, but with a rally made one, then you can change it according to the terrain that you're on. And they've done all sorts of bits and pieces to it. Um, and when I looked at those and I talked to Jenny and um, went through with her all the modifications, yeah, you've got some money to spend, but it's turned a very competent bike 
um, in its natural state into something that has huge possibilities. So again, as Grant was saying, it's a case of farkling a bike to suit yourself. And one of the things that I liked about what Rally Raid had done with that 310 is all the modifications that they've done to it. So think about the weight of bash plates and bash bars and all the rest of it. It actually comes out as the same weight as the original um, bog standard BMW 310. And that is the risk in a lot of instances, isn't it? When you farkle a bike and you add on the extras, that actually you're making a nimble bike into something that just is shed loads heavier. Mm-hmm. And that's a gamble, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, Sam. And, uh, you know, with with my big 1200GS, I took 10 kilos off it just by changing the muffler, getting rid of the muffler and putting a, a Leo Vince muffler, um, just a standard muffler on it, uh, made a big difference. And, you know, you can use that weight somewhere else if you want to. And there's things that are sensible um, additions or subtractions from your adventure bike that will make your trip so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was talking about sensitivity of the new bikes. Well, I think actually I'd quite like to protect my bike engine if I'm burning around off-road. Um, so I yeah, would want to. Skid pan's a basic necessity on. for sure. It is. Yeah. I mean, I actually put two on on Libby, my R80GS, um, one underneath the engine, and I attached another one down the length of the centre stand. And um, I ripped both of them off with various falls. Um, And just think about the damage that I would have done to the engine without (laughs) Yeah, something like the 1200GS, if you don't have a good skid pan, you're going to put a big hole right in that huge, expensive crankcase. That's it, you're done. So we've seen that done. We had a guy do that he actually ripped the skid pan off his bike the original the original factory one ripped it off in a crash and punctured a hole into his skid plate and he was riding the hum in spain and he got out some liquid metal and cleaned it off as best he could with gasoline and put some liquid metal on it waited for it to dry and he finished the event and he actually did very well so but you still don't you don't want to do that unless you have to that's always a desperate move um, but uh, some basic protection, I think, is necessary. But I was looking at a 1200GS specs recently, and the 1200GS versus the GSA, there's about 25-plus kilos difference in weight between the two bikes. And they're effectively the same bike, except the GS Adventure bike is a whole lot heavier because it's got so much more protection stuff and longer suspension, etc. So you've got to be careful that you actually get the right bike for what you're doing. If you're really going to use that Adventure 1200 and ride a lot of serious hard off-road, great, go for it. But you're going to have a heavier bike, whereas the standard model is much more nimble and feels much livelier and is lower and is easier to ride in a lot of places. So... Everybody, uh, just quiet. You gotta act like you're not there. Okay, so as we said at the start, this wraps it up, sort of. Part one, anyway. We're gonna break this into two parts to give you a break because this is the time now you wanna get up, you wanna move around, maybe do some exercise, get the blood flowing, get your brain working again. And, and really, you need to be careful. Do not operate heavy equipment while listening to this episode because it's just it's just downright dangerous. It's something you should not do. So here's what you can do. You can skip this uh, to another day, listen to part two another day, or you could find out what's coming up next because there's a number of things that you might want to hear that are coming up right next and you might miss out. But that's okay. It's your choice. Decide what you want to do. This is the end of part one. Come on back for part two. It's there, ready for you to listen to anytime. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, part one for May 2018. Before we go, um, I'd like to ask you to drop by our website and consider clicking on the support button. That's www.adventureriderradio.com. Remember, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on this show. So we really appreciate that. If you can't do it, that's fine. But if you can, we'd really appreciate it because we certainly need your support. Well, I want to give a special thanks to my co-host, Graham Field, lives in Bulgaria and has some great adventure motorcycle travel books for you at www.gramfield.co.uk. 
the most innovative and desirable travel book package ever conceived, the Pannier box set, which is Graham's, the sexiest thing you can put on a bookshelf. This is all Graham's words, containing three books and with over 150 Amazon five-star reviews. That's pretty darn good. Anyway, drop by his website and check that out. Also, Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK, he has four paperback books that would take you through different countries, which turned out to be his eight-year trip around the world. Tons of information there, some really great books. You can check out his website at www.sam-manicom.com. Uh, he also does a, a bunch of um, other articles and, and different things. And of course, his books are all on, on uh, Audible as well. You can get them there. And Shirley and Brian, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks from Australia. They've got some great moto travel books and, and they do articles on motorcycle travel, as you heard Brian say there. They're available anywhere you get ebooks or drop by their website, www.aussiesoverland.com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for the adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum for connecting travelers around the world. They also put on the hub meets around the world. See a worldwide list of hub meets at www.horizonsunlimited.com. Something you definitely want to do this summer is attend one of their meets. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Raw. See you next month.